This podcast is supported by Zoll LifeVest. Sudden cardiac death is a leading cause of mortality in low EF patients with heart failure or following a heart attack. Zoll is proud to partner with your care team to pursue better outcomes together. Visit LifeVestResults.com to learn more. Worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories. Welcome back, Cardio Nerds. This is going to be a phenomenal case discussion, exciting and special for so many reasons. We get to host the Brigham and Women's Residency Program. And just prior to the recording, Dan and I were fondly remembering that we actually first met on the interview trail for residency at the pre-residency interview dinner. And I'm looking at the email now, back from 2014, we first met at Elephant Walk at 7 p.m., on a Wednesday, December 4th in 2014. So a lot of fond memories and nostalgia coming back as we hang out with our friends over at the Brigham Residency. Also very special are the wonderful guests we're gonna teach us today. We have with us Dr. Danny Pippolis, who is our FIT ambassador from MGH and currently doing his chief residency year at the Brigham and Women's. We have Dr. Gurleen Kaur, who's an intern at the Brigham and is also director for the Cardiators Internship and her all-star co-intern, Dr. Khaled Abdelrahman. Guys, it is so great to have you on the show. Can you please introduce yourselves to the audience? Hi, Dan and Ahmed. It's so great to be here with you all and talk through this cardiology case. I'm Gurleen. I'm currently an intern at Bergman Women's. I grew up in New Jersey, went to medical school at Albany Medical College, and I'm so excited to hang out with you all in Boston today. I'm so excited for today's episode. This is Khaled Abdurrahman. I am an intern at the Brigham Women's Hospital. I'm originally from Deep South, Texas, and I went to med school at the University of Texas at Austin. And I'm also interested in cardiology and with a special interest in cardiac imaging. And my name is Danny Pippolis. I am a cardiology fellow at Mass General and the FIT ambassador for the MGH Cardiology Fellowship Program. I am currently serving as chief resident at Brigham and Women's Hospital, where I did my residency. And I have the distinct pleasure of learning from Khaled and Gurleen every single day of this year while I'm doing my chief residency and learning from them during the preparation of this awesome case that we have here for you guys today. So thank you so much for having me back on the podcast as well. Dan and Amit, it's good to see you both. Danny Gurley and Khaled, wow, welcome. And yes, I remember that wonderful evening. I was actually seated across Amit totally randomly, just like right across the dinner table. He was there with his wife, Riddy, who was interviewing for pediatrics at the time. And it was a cardio nerd love at first sight, I definitely will say. And speaking to Danny right before the podcast recording, we have seen him go from cardiology fellow to chief resident. And it's like, we just talking to him before this case, just see so much inspiration that he is getting in his role, working with residents and interns on a daily basis. So it is awesome to be with you guys in Boston. We couldn't be more jazzed. So, Gurleen, I know that you had mentioned that you had a wonderful place to take us in Boston this evening. Where are we going so we can start talking about some serious cardiology? Yeah, we're so glad to have you both back in the city where you first met. So imagine we're sitting at a restaurant doing outdoor dining on Hanover Street in the north end of Boston, also known as Little Italy. We're having some fine Italian cuisine and nerding out about cardiology cases. And we can't forget to go down the street to Mike's Pastry and also have some cannolis, which are truly a Bostonian special. That all sounds very, very delicious and a lot of fun. But Gurleen, you had us at nerding out about cardiology cases. So let's just dive right in. Great. Kale, why don't you tell us about your patient today? Gurleen, thanks for setting our scene in my favorite neighborhood in Boston. Let's get started. Our patient is a 76-year-old man with a history of hyperlipidemia who presented with one month of progressively worsening fatigue, anorexia, headache, and dizziness, alongside intermittent left upper quadrant abdominal pain. 
One week prior to presentation, he had a fever at a 101 degrees Fahrenheit, and his family had noticed he was less active than usual over the past three weeks or so. He'd noticed a 10-pound weight loss over this time as well, and felt short of breath with activities such as taking out the trash. Overall, he felt fatigued and tired. He had no recent travel or sick contacts. He had no chills, cough, chest pain, leg swelling, or orthopnea. And he'd initially presented to his PCP with these symptoms, who got a chest x-ray that demonstrated enlargement of the cardiac silhouette. He was then sent to the ED for further evaluation. Khaled, this is such a wonderful introduction, and I think such a kind of all-encompassing HPI. I think what we have so far in this case seems like a combination of so many nonspecific systemic symptoms, some B symptoms, and this really points toward the possibility of a systemic process, especially given the weight loss and generalized fatigue. Now, we know we're on the CardioNerds podcast, so we're going to focus on something cardiac. But when you see this patient in the clinic or you're starting your evaluation, I think what really strikes me is that the enlargement of the cardiomediastinal silhouette may be something to help guide the workup for this person with systemic symptoms. And that really piques my interest. So, Gurleen, would you be able to walk us through your approach to an enlarged cardiomediastinal silhouette on chest X-ray? Thanks, Danny. So when I think about an enlarged cardiac silhouette or a cardiothoracic ratio of greater than 50% on imaging, I like to break it down into two big buckets. Is this an actual enlargement of the heart in terms of cardiomegaly, or is this a pericardial process like a pericardial effusion that's causing this enlarged cardiac silhouette? So when I'm thinking about each of these causes, I further break it down into different buckets. For cardiomegaly, it could be dilated or hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, most common causes including coronary artery disease, hypertension, valvular heart disease, and arrhythmia-induced cardiomyopathy. And then the other buckets to keep in mind are inflammatory causes, either infectious or autoimmune, as well as infiltrative diseases like amyloid or sarcoid. And it's also important to keep in mind toxins such as alcohol, cocaine, or medications that can lead to cardiomyopathy, as well as endocrine and nutritional causes. The other aspect of an enlarged cardiac silhouette, it might just represent fluid building around the heart. The most sensitive sign of a pericardial effusion on chest x-ray is enlargement of the cardiac silhouette with sensitivity being around 71% below specificity. And how you can differentiate cardiomegaly with a pericardial effusion is with a pericardial effusion, you usually have symmetric expansion of the heart, which can lead to a globular appearance, which is commonly referred to as a flask-shaped or the water bottle sign. Now, when I'm thinking about this patient, important things that I'm thinking about in terms of evaluating on the physical exam are signs of heart failure. Is there elevated JVP, lower extremity edema, or ascites? As well as signs concerning that if this is a pericardial effusion, whether it's progressed to tamponade. So I'm looking for distant heart sounds, hypotension, an elevated JVP, or even pulses paradoxus. So Khalid, can you tell us a little bit more about this patient's physical exam? What did you find on evaluation? The patient was afebrile with a heart rate of 91 beats per minute, blood pressure of 117 over 72, respiratory rate of 18, setting 98% on room air. He appeared fatigued but in no acute distress with normal work of breathing and no accessory muscle use. Lungs were clear to auscultation, and cardiac exam was significant for regular rate and rhythm with a 3 out of 6 systolic murmur at the left upper sternal border. A flopping sound was heard throughout the cardiac cycle along the sternum. He had no significant lower extremity edema, and JVP was elevated to the level of the mandible. Thanks, Khaled. This physical exam is extremely interesting. First of all, just to mention that the patient's overall vitals and appearance are reassuring. Some important pertinent negatives are that his lungs are clear to auscultation, so we don't see any evidence of overt pulmonary edema. 
But there is evidence of right-sided heart failure on exam. We have an elevated JVP. And you know what's intriguing is the murmur quality and also the flopping sound on auscultation. And I want to know a little bit more about that. And I'm really excited to see what happened next. Let's go ahead and see what initial lab and imaging studies revealed. But I really want to know what's going on with that flopping sound. So CBC and BMP were mostly unremarkable, but high sensitivity troponin was elevated at 72 and then 77 on a recheck. NT pro BNP was elevated at 1,469, and chest X-ray redemonstrated that non-specific enlargement of the cardiac silhouette with no evidence of pulmonary edema. There was a trace left pleural effusion. EKG showed sinus rhythm with some PACs, normal access and intervals, and some non-specific T-wave abnormality. Yeah, this is all very interesting, and I'm still thinking about that flopping murmur that you mentioned. That's definitely caught my attention. But going back to the information you just presented to us, Khalid, so we see here signs and evidence of heart failure, cardiomegaly, fatigue, elevated JVD, and of course, an elevated NT-pro-BNP is a sensitive but relatively nonspecific marker for acute heart failure. Another finding we have here is the elevated high-sensitivity troponin. So the slightly elevated high-sensitivity troponin could represent a type 2 NSTEMI due to demand ischemia, especially in the absence of chest pain and any findings suggestive ischemia on the EKG. But in this case, the elevated troponin could also represent myocarditis or infiltration or direct myocardial damage, given that we have some other symptoms here with the fever, the B symptoms. And then the other aspect is this left pleural effusion. There's a very broad differential for a trace unilateral pleural effusion, but in this case, with the patient's other findings of volume overload, it would be consistent with that. Were the pleural effusion to be larger or not improve with treatment, a thoracentesis or pleural fluid analysis would be more helpful for us to further understand diagnostically what was going on. Wow. So Gurley, you really just highlighted a lot of the different findings in this case that are all coming together into what we have as his current presentation. If I could just highlight a few, as you note, this is a gentleman in his 70s who's presenting with fever and B symptoms. And not only does he have an enlarged cardiomediastinal silhouette on x-ray, but he has a trace pleural effusion. He has an elevated NT-pro-BNP. He has an elevated JVD, and he has a troponin elevation. And so What we have is really somebody who's older presenting with some systemic symptoms and physical exam findings of heart failure. So there's a lot of ways to marry these symptoms, but there's a lot of things that I don't want to miss just by honing in on the cardiac stuff. So he could have a systemic inflammatory condition, for example, an infectious process that could lead to endocarditis, and that could link some of his cardiac findings with his systemic findings. He could have a non-infectious inflammatory process, something like malignancy. He could have an old infectious process that was missed, now leading to a myocarditis and some sort of pleuritis leading to a pleural effusion. Or he could have a systemic process that's leading to something that's non-inflammatory in nature, affecting multiple systems, something like an endocrinopathy or something wrong with his thyroid. And whether that stemmed from infection or malignancy or something more nefarious or insidious going on, There's a lot of aspects of this case that are very, very tantalizing. But as you note, what would be really interesting is highlighting a little bit more of what's going on in the heart with an echocardiogram, especially since our physical exam told us there's a murmur, there's a plopping sound, and he has findings of heart failure. But I don't want to miss what's going on with his general presentation too, and everything going on with his systemic symptoms. Danny, that was such a helpful framework to be able to think about this case. And that leads us to our echo. So TTE showed normal LV systolic function with an EF of 60%, mildly decreased RV systolic function. There was mild dilation of the ascending aorta, and additionally, there was a large heterogeneous echo density in the RV-free wall that extended into the pericardium and also into the RV myocardium with mobile components in the RV cavity 
apical to the tricuspid valve and immediately adjacent to the pulmonic valve. There was obstruction of flow out of the right ventricular outflow tract with a peak and mean gradient of 27 and 16 respectively, and there was some vascularity to the structure noted. There was also a small to moderate pericardial effusion and no RV chamber collapse to suggest any tamponade physiology. Wow. Thank you, Colin. Anybody who's been on Twitter in the last three years has seen hashtag echo first. And oh boy, this is why I think hashtag echo first works. I mean, there is so much to dissect on this TTE. First of all, we have a reason for a lot of the physical exam findings we've found. We have a mass of the RV that extends into the RVOT, which could explain the murmur at the left upper sternal border. Uh, we have basically this mobile component to the mass, which could be causing a plopping sound. We have this pericardial effusion, which, as Gerline had highlighted before, could be the etiology of why the cardiomediastinal silhouette was enlarged on X-ray. And now my mind is racing because I'm trying to think about what this mass could be. While we may be jumping towards cardiac tumor, given the description on echo with vascularity, it's important to note that what we see on echo regarding color Doppler and those kinds of things, we can't really hang our hat on the fact that this is a primary cardiac tumor to begin with. So we still need to keep our minds broad and think about cardiac thrombi, vegetations, all kinds of different cardiac masses that this could be. So Gerline, what is your general diagnostic approach to an intracardiac mass and how does that guide your next steps in evaluation? Thanks, Danny. I think this is a great case to think about our diagnostic approach to cardiac masses. There's a really great state-of-the-art review in Jack Cardio Oncology by Tebeli et al. that really lays out a very helpful diagnostic approach. So when we're thinking about a cardiac mass, it's first important to think through what could it possibly represent. Is it a tumor or is this a thrombus, a vegetation, or even a pericardial cyst? And after we think about what a cardiac mass could represent, there's four factors that this article mentions that we should consider in our diagnostic framework. So the first thing is the age of the patient at time of presentation. This is really important because certain clinical entities like rhabdomyomas and fibromas are more common in the pediatric population. Obviously, in this case, we have a very different demographic of an older man presenting, so we're not thinking about those specific clinical entities. The second thing to then think about is the epidemiological likelihood and the clinical probability. If this were a patient with a recent anterior wall MI and an akinetic ventricular apex, I would be concerned about an intracardiac thrombus if I saw a cardiac mass on echo. However, in the case of our patient, we have a man who has systemic signs of fatigue and weight loss, and these systemic signs raise the concern for malignancy. And then the third factor to consider in the diagnostic approach is the location of the tumor. If the mass was on the valves, thrombus or vegetations would be important to consider, but even masses in the chambers can be from a thrombus. Other things to consider if it was a mass in the chambers would be myxomas, lymphomas, and even metastases. And then the fourth factor to consider in our diagnostic approach is the tissue characterization of the mass on further diagnostic imaging, such as cardiac MRI. Further diagnostic imaging, like we'll get to later, can be really important in further classifying cardiac masses and distinguishing between the different types. Thanks, Julian. That was a great breakdown of the diagnostic approach to cardiac masses. And this seems like a solid mass, which rhymes with collid. And as Khalid mentioned before, in our patient's echo, we saw vascularity going to the structure, which would most be keeping with the tumor, as you said. In terms of cardiac tumors, just to note that primary cardiac tumors can be classified as benign, malignant, or intermediate. And more than 90% are benign. And this includes your myxomas, your rhabdomyomas, your papillary fibroelastomas, fibromas, hemangiomas, lipomas, and leomyomas, oh my. Malignant tumors are very rare and represent only about 5 to 6% of primary cardiac tumors. And note we're talking primary tumors here, but of the malignant tumors of the heart, metastatic tumors are by far more common than primary cardiac malignant tumors. 
Of the malignant cardiac tumors that are primary, sarcomas are most common, followed by lymphomas and mesotheliomas. Multimodal imaging is crucial for evaluation of cardiac masses, both in differentiating a mass from a thrombus and in further characterization of a tumor if a tumor is identified. Now, before we hear the results of the imaging tests in our patients, Gurleen, could you walk us through some of the imaging modalities utilized in the evaluation of cardiac masses? Yeah, definitely. So there's a lot of different options ranging from TTE and TEE to cardiac MRI and cardiac CT and PET. So let's first talk about echocardiography because this is widely available and accessible. So TTE is often the first modality utilized in evaluation of a cardiac mass. And TE is also very useful when you're looking at valvular lesions or in patients with atrial masses or mobile valvular lesions. Echo is really important in characterizing the size, the morphology, the attachment site, the extension, as well as hemodynamic effects. You can also utilize quantitative perfusion imaging with ultrasound-enhancing agents in ECHO that can demonstrate perfusion patterns, and these perfusion patterns can help differentiate between different masses. For example, you can see a non-enhancing pattern of a thrombus, while a malignancy might have a hyper-enhancing pattern. And then advanced ECHO also helps us discern the hemodynamic effects of a mass using velocities by Doppler. Malignant tumors are also very vascular. Like we mentioned earlier in the echo of this patient, there was some increased vascularity. This increased vascularity can be seen in malignant tumors such as sarcomas or hemangiomas, and they can demonstrate greater enhancement than the adjacent myocardium. And this is in contrary to benign tumors such as myxomas that have very poor blood supply and demonstrate lower perfusion. However, even perfusion imaging by echo is limited in further differentiating various malignancies and that's where other imaging modalities come into play that we'll touch upon in a little bit. And then the last aspect of echocardiography is 3D echo, which can be utilized with TEE to give us more information about the shape, the location, and the characteristics of the mass beyond what we can get from a 2D echo alone. That's such a great rundown of echocardiography, Gurleen. What a fantastic job highlighting the importance of TEE and advanced cardiac imaging. Another imaging modality that can be extremely helpful in the workup of a cardiac mass is a cardiac MRI especially when echo findings alone are unable to sufficiently characterize the mass. MRI allows for better characterization of soft tissue. It can assess mass morphology, dimensions, homogeneity, infiltration of surrounding tissues. And this can all differentiate what types of mass and whether a mass is benign or malignant, and it can be super, super helpful. Signal characteristics gathered from T1, T2, and early gadolinium enhancement and late gadolinium enhancement sequences can further assess fatty infiltration, necrosis, hemorrhage, and vascularity within a mass. And it's important to note that early gadolinium enhancement can help to detect thrombi. Another advanced imaging modality is cardiac CT, and this has high spatial and temporal resolution. It has the ability to reconstruct images in multiple different planes, and it has a fast acquisition time, so it's a little bit easier to obtain than an MRI. And you can also assess the lung tissue and the rest of the chest when you get a cardiac CT, which can be super, super helpful. A CT may also be good for defining a surgical approach, and it can also evaluate the coronary arteries, assess for coronary calcifications, assess for coronary disease in patients who you're thinking about surgical resection of a cardiac mass for. And it also has the ability to assess calcifications within the mass itself a little bit better than MRI does. Some limitations of CT, though, include that it has limited soft tissue resolution compared to an MRI. So a lot of times you need both a cardiac CT and a cardiac MRI. The last advanced imaging modality I want to mention is a PET. Both a whole body PET scan and a cardiac PET scan can be valuable depending on what type of evaluation you need for your mass. And when a cardiac CT alone doesn't help determine whether the mass is benign or malignant or metabolically active, a PET CT can help to discern a diagnosis of metabolically active tissue. In addition, PET imaging can guide biopsy sites if there is extra cardiac manifestations of this process and it can determine whether or not there's easier tissue to access if you really need tissue to make a diagnosis. 
So each of these modalities provides a unique utility in making a diagnosis and also helps with management and surveillance of cardiac masses. And in most patients, you don't just get one of these tests. You need more than one, as we'll see as we move forward in our case. Wow, Danny, that was such a thorough review of all the imaging modalities, and there's definitely so many different options, and each have their own unique advantages. So Khalid, tell us more about what our patient underwent. Which of these tests did he have in terms of imaging modalities for further diagnostic workup? Now, our patient got a cardiac CT, cardiac MR, as well as full-body PET CT. First, let me tell you about a CT chest, though. CT chest demonstrated a 19 millimeter by 14 millimeter solid nodule in the periphery of the left lower lobe of the lung, as well as dilation of the descending thoracic aorta. Cardiac CT showed a large homogeneous mass in the right AV groove that extended anterior to the right ventricular outflow tract, the pulmonary artery, and the ascending aorta, measuring 9.4 centimeters by 7 centimeters by 12 centimeters. The mass encased the proximal thoracic aorta and the pulmonary artery and invaded the RV myocardium as well as the RV outflow tract. There was also noted to be severe stenosis of the RV outflow tract due to obstruction by the mass, which also encased the right coronary artery without compression. There was noted to be a large pericardial effusion with pericardial enhancement, indicative of pericardial inflammation. The report also commented these findings collectively were suggestive of a cardiac lymphoma in addition to the pericardial effusion. Wow. This just really is extremely elucidative and confirms the mass visualized on echocardiogram and gives us insight into just how extensive this mass is. First of all, the invasion of the mass into the RV and extension into the RVOT with RVOT obstruction gives us insight as to the cause of the signs of volume overload and right heart failure that this patient exhibited. And it makes us concerned for the risk of development of further right heart failure and RV dysfunction given significantly increased afterload on the RV. Also, the encasement of several vascular structures, and in particular, the right coronary artery, are of significant concern. And it's worrisome that if this were to continue, that the further decompensation and complications would arise. I also just want to note that based on these findings, I think that the systemic symptoms and really the whole case is coming together and that there is a reason for his systemic B symptoms and for his primary cardiac presentation if this truly is cardiac lymphoma. So, Khaled, this is a very interesting development in the case. As mentioned, if the CT findings are certainly suggestive of malignancy, and if it is cardiac lymphoma, this usually presents with a poorly defined mass infiltrating the myocardium, often with pericardial effusion, as we see in this case. And usually there is extension along epicardial structures, coronary arteries, and within the AV groove, as seen in this case. So this is going to be very, very interesting. And Khaled, I can't wait to hear what happened next. So next, let me tell you about the cardiac MRI which also demonstrated this large homogeneous soft tissue intensity mass in the right AV groove, infiltrating the right ventricular free wall and extending cranially anterior to the aorta and the main pulmonary artery. Similar to what was shown in the CT, it showed the mass encasing the main PA, aortic root, and the right coronary artery, as well as the left main coronary artery and invading the RV outflow tract and the proximal main PA, resulting in severe luminal narrowing at the level of the RVOT and the pulmonic valve. Some of the additional information provided by the MRI was that the mass was iso-intense to myocardium on the T1-weighted images and hyper-intense on the T2-weighted images. It also enhanced on first-pass perfusion images. There was heterogeneous enhancement on late gadolinium enhancement images. Wow, as we discussed, MRI here is really offering us an additional utility to using CT alone, especially in characterizing the tissue of the mass. So the MRI here, similar to the CT, shows a large, ill-defined mass involving multiple areas of the heart and encasing several vascular structures. 
What the MRI is particularly good at is the tissue characterization. So the ISO intensity on T1 imaging, which we see here in our patient, can be seen in a wide range of common benign cardiac masses, including myxoma, fibroma, and rhabdomyoma, but also in malignant masses like rhabdomyosarcoma, undifferentiated sarcoma, and lymphoma. When we're thinking about other cardiac masses, metastases and thrombi are more often hypo-intense, but it can also be hyper-intense if they're recent. And angiosarcomas are heterogeneous on T1-weighted imaging. The other aspect we have here is the T2 imaging. So hyperintensity on T2 imaging, as we see here in this patient, can be seen in cardiac lymphoma, but cardiac lymphomas can actually also appear iso-intense on T2 imaging. As far as malignant masses, hyperintensity on T2 imaging can also be seen in rhabdomyosarcoma or undifferentiated sarcomas. Finally, the last thing we see in this patient is heterogeneous enhancement with late gadolinium enhancement, which can be seen in several malignant cardiac masses, including cardiac lymphoma, where it can be homogeneous or heterogeneous. So putting that all together in this patient, the imaging is suggestive of cardiac lymphoma with the iso-intensity on T1, the hyper-intensity on T2, and the heterogeneous enhancement on late gadolinium enhancement. But I think in terms of further clinching or diagnosis, we really need to get a biopsy potentially guided by a PET scan. Yeah, but before we get to the biopsy, let me tell you about the PET. The patient also underwent PET, which showed FDG-AVID infiltrative mediastinal disease, most likely representing a high-grade lymphoma. Additionally, there was discrete mediastinal and hilar nodes, as well as the left lower lobe nodule, most likely demonstrating additional areas of lymphomatous involvement. And if you'll remember, that same left lower lobe nodule was also demonstrated on the chest CT. So Colin, both the cardiac CT and MRI showed a large pericardial effusion. Was the fluid ever sampled? It was. The patient underwent pericardiosynthesis with drainage of about 100 cc's of a serosanguinous fluid with placement of a pericardial drain. The fluid was red in appearance and contained 396 nucleated cells, including 54 neutrophils and 39 lymph. Cytology of the pericardial fluid, including flow cytometry, interestingly did not demonstrate any malignant cells or cells suggestive of a B-cell lymphoproliferative disorder. Yeah, Khalid, that's definitely very interesting because when I think about a pericardial fusion in someone that we think has a malignancy, I think that those two would likely be interconnected. So what happened to the patient next? So next, the patient underwent an IR-guided biopsy of that left lower lung nodule, which was thought to be a metastasis of the malignancy, and that demonstrated a diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, which we know was primarily involving the myocardium and the mediastinum. The patient was started on dexamethasone initially, and then started RTOP therapy, which includes rituximab, cyclophosphamide, doxorubicin, vincristine, and prednisone. Wow. As we mentioned before, malignant cardiac tumors are pretty rare. And here we have primary cardiac lymphoma, which is even more rare. Colin, can you teach us about primary cardiac lymphoma? So a diffuse large B-cell lymphoma is the most common subtype. But other subtypes like Burkitt lymphoma, low-grade B-cell lymphoma, and T-cell lymphoma have also been described. They occur more commonly in immunocompromised individuals, but can also occur in immunocompetent patients. Overall, these only account for about 1% of primary cardiac tumors. Presenting symptoms are usually nonspecific and can manifest as rhythm issues like heart block, syncopal episodes, or even restrictive cardiomyopathy. Approximately 20% of these patients may develop acute heart failure even before other symptoms appear. On echo, these tumors often appear homogenous with a predilection for the right heart chambers, especially the right atrium. The AV groove can be affected, encasing the right coronary artery. And on CMR, tissue often appears iso-intense on T1-weighted imaging. 
On T2-weighted imaging, lesions are mildly hyperintense due to diffuse edema, and this was seen in our patient's CMR. Treatment is with anthracycline-based chemotherapy, and rituximab is included, with an overall response rate ranging between about 79 to 87%, but the recurrence rate is quite high, as high as 55%, usually occurring at extracardiac, extranodal sites. Wow, thank you so much, Khalid, for teaching us about cardiac lymphomas. It's great to now have an illness script to think about this clinical entity, especially because it's not seen that often. And it's been great to walk through the different imaging modalities and findings that suggest this diagnosis. So what happened to this patient next after this diagnosis of cardiac lymphoma? So first, the patient underwent four cycles of RCHOP, after which a PET-CT demonstrated interval decrease in the size and resolved FEG uptake of the infiltrative soft tissue in the anterior mediastinum, which of course involved the heart and the left lower lobe nodule. On a repeat CTE four months later, after six cycles of RCHOP had been completed, there was no mass demonstrated in the right ventricular outflow tract or in the right ventricle. So I have to ask, what's a pirate's favorite chemotherapy? What is it, Danny? RCHOP. It must be. Wow. Thanks, everybody. <laughs> Thank you so much. <laughs> no, but seriously, in all seriousness, that's incredible. What an interesting resolution to the case in terms of diagnosis and treatment. And so happy to see that the FDG uptake is going down and the mass is, you know, resolving. But given that this patient received several cycles of chemo and RCHOP contains the anthracycline doxorubicin, which we know can be cardiotoxic, what sort of monitoring does this patient need going forward? Yeah, Danny, that's such a great question. And it's a very interesting topic and an active area of research. So as we know, anthracyclines are part of first-line therapy for a lot of different malignancies and cancers, including lymphoma. But unfortunately, there's a lot of cardiotoxicity with this agent, which typically manifests with systolic pump dysfunction. Around 35% of patients that receive anthracycline therapy develop some sort of cardiotoxicity. This can be dose-related toxicity that presents early on following treatment, often in the first one to two years, but it can also occur even years after the fact of getting the medication. The pathogenesis of this cardiotoxicity is related to cardiomyocyte changes that lead to cellular apoptosis and can provoke global injury to both of the ventricles. So TTE is the most common modality used for detection and monitoring of anthracycline toxicity in the heart. And while LV dysfunction is most commonly detected, recent investigations suggest that the RV function is also significantly affected by anthracycline toxicity although there's technical challenges, including ventricle shape, that make this harder to assess by a traditional TTE. So the right ventricle is often thought of as a forgotten ventricle, but there's been a lot of research in advanced echo, including strain imaging and 3D echo that can be used to assess anthracycline effects on the right ventricle. And in one particular 2020 study in Jack in CardioOng, they demonstrated these RV effects in patients receiving anthracycline therapy for lymphoma, really highlighting the importance of monitoring both the left ventricle and the right ventricle and their function in these patients. Another thing that has emerged as a reproducible indicator of early anthracycline-related myocardial dysfunction and future reduction in left ventricular ejection fraction is global systolic longitudinal myocardial strain. Global systolic longitudinal myocardial strain can identify anthracycline-induced cardiotoxicity even before there is a reduction in injection fraction. So global longitudinal strain can be an early injury marker predictive of future LV systolic dysfunction, and reduced global longitudinal strain is directly associated with adverse outcomes, and it holds significant promise within the fields of cardio-oncology. So now that we're on the topic of anthracycline cardiac toxicity, Khalid, are there specific risk factors and ways to prevent it? 
So the risk of developing an anthracycline-induced cardiotoxicity is directly proportional to the dose of anthracycline received. And after studies demonstrated a heart failure incidence of 26% with a doxorubicin dose 550 milligrams per meter squared, as compared to a 5% incidence with a dose of 400 milligrams per meter squared, efforts have been made to limit the cumulative anthracycline doses to about 400 to 450 milligrams per meter squared. In addition, hypertension, diabetes, obesity have all been identified as possible risk factors associated with an increased risk of AIC or anthracycline-induced cardiotoxicity. As far as prevention goes, there are two primary prevention strategies. One, using cardioprotective agents, and two, aiming to reduce the potency of anthracycline. For cardioprotection, dextrazoxane is an FDA-approved cardioprotective agent for anthracycline-induced cardiotoxicity. Initially, it was thought that the cardioprotective mechanism of this drug was its ability to chelate iron. But interestingly, later studies have demonstrated effects of dextrazoxane on topoisomerase 2, which prevent anthracycline binding. This is important because topoisomerase 2 inhibition by anthracycline leading to double-stranded breaks in DNA has been revealed the primary mediator of anthracycline toxicity. Mechanisms to reduce the potency of anthracycline have also been proposed as a primary prevention strategy and include continuous infusion administration, use of liposomal encapsulation of doxorubicin, or using a less cardiotoxic derivative like epirubicin or idarubicin. And with regard to secondary prevention, while beta blockers and ACE inhibitors have been studied with some suggestion of benefit in LBEF recovery, definitive evidence of efficacy remains limited. Wow. Khalid, Gerlin, Dan, Amit, can you believe the journey we just went on? We came from a 76-year-old man walking into our primary care clinic with fever, weight loss, and fatigue, and got to an enlarged cardiomedial stenal silhouette on chest x-ray. And then our TTE showed us that there was an infiltrative mass in the right ventricle. And then our cardiac MRI clearly delineated that this was probably a malignant cardiac tumor. And we used cardiac CT to look for extra cardiac manifestations of this disease and help with surgical planning and staging of what was probably a malignancy. And we ultimately got to the diagnosis of cardiac lymphoma and ended our Cardio Nerds podcast talking about topoisomerase 2. I don't know about you, but I haven't thought about topoisomerase 2 since medical school. And I was extremely excited this whole case. And with ending on a molecular mechanism for how to prevent cardiotoxicity and malignancy, I couldn't be more nerdy right now, and I couldn't be happier to be nerding out with all of you. I couldn't agree more. Gosh, what a journey really it has been. And I've got to say that for a patient who's lived over 70 years of life with a medical history of hyperlipidemia and sciatica, not that these aren't important problems in and of themselves, you've diagnosed this patient with a life-threatening, life-altering diagnosis and really guided him through an extraordinary diagnostic array of tests and with a multidisciplinary approach, got him through pretty complex management to a point of really resolving at least the you know imaging markers of his cancer. And you're already thinking about next steps and surveilling him for puzzle cardiac toxicity down the road. So really just phenomenal job. It's wonderful that he found his way into your care. Yes, I couldn't agree more. Berlin, Danny, and Kala, just thank you so much for joining us for this amazing discussion and those cannolis, weren't they? <laughs> this definitely doesn't work with the Noom thing that Amit's trying to get me to join. But we had a fabulous discussion. You guys brought an A game as expected, but I guess you guys brought an A plus game as more than expected. And thank you so much for educating us. And we are so appreciative. And thanks for being here. 
Now for the ECPR segment, we have our expert, Dr. Ron Blankstein. Dr. Blankstein is the Associate Director of the Cardiovascular Imaging Program and Director of Cardiac Computed Tomography and a preventative cardiologist at Brigham and Women's Hospital. He is also a professor of medicine at Harvard Medical School. Dr. Blankstein is an expert in multimodality imaging, and I'm really excited to hear his thoughts about this case and learn from his expert opinion. Dr. Blankstein was my attending in the inpatient cardiology service, and I definitely learned a lot about prevention, about multimodality imaging, and all aspects of cardiology and clinical care from him. He also took care of this patient when this patient was admitted on the cardiology service. So I can't think of anyone better to end our discussion on this great case. Carleen, Danny, and Colin, thank you so much for the opportunity to join you today. You guys really highlighted all the key points of this case. Of course, I had the pleasure of taking care of this patient as well, and I certainly remember when he presented, we were all impressed by the fact that he had one month of fatigue and dyspnea and fevers and weight loss, and generally he seemed chronically ill. Nevertheless, he was relatively well compensated from a cardiac perspective, and we were all impressed by his murmur, as you described it, a flopping murmur that made us suspect of some involvement by by the right heart. Even though it wasn't a a classic tricuspid valve murmur, it did change in intensity. I think that's the flopping component that it wasn't regular throughout the cardiac cycle. And also there was elevation in the troponin, also a clue that there was some potential myocardial injury, which of course, in retrospect, we know it's because of the infiltration from the tumor. So one of the big questions often in these cases is what imaging should we do? And and Danny, you've already highlighted the, the hashtag echo first. And of course, echo is the best initial modality here. Echo shows us not only if there's a a mass, but it can show the implications of the mass and the physiologic consequences. On the heart, we can look for things like a pericardial effusion. And when that's present, that often is a clue that this is likely a malignant process. But in this case, as is often the the case, even after an echocardiogram, a test that we can do anywhere in the hospital, we may want to obtain more detailed tests. And this is where tests like cardiac CT or cardiac MRI can provide more information because it can show the true extent of the mass because in echo we are dependent on particular views we may not be able to see the entire extent of the mass especially if it's outside the heart so when should we use cardiac mri and cardiac uh, ct well generally cardiac mri is the preferred modality for looking at masses you've already alluded to the fact that it has good tissue characterization what that means is that it's able to look at the tissue and look at the structure of different masses. So for example, a tumor like metastatic melanoma, which tends to involve the heart and has increased protein because of the melanin protein. That's easy to see on MRI because the it's going to be bright on T1 imaging. On the other hand, when there is metastatic melanoma in the myocardium, sometimes on echocardiography or cardiac CT, that might not be obvious. So that ability to actually see in the myocardium and characterize different tissues, look at things like increased fat involvement or vascularity or protein content. These are all things that can be done with MRI and certainly a very useful test. So when should we do a coronary CTA? A coronary CTA or a cardiac CT is done when we are concerned if there's coronary involvement. So specifically at times, masses can encase the coronary arteries or compress the coronary arteries or even have blood supply off the coronary arteries. And whenever that's a question, coronary CT would be the best test to do there. 
or if we are suspecting a pseudoaneurysm. So pseudoaneurysms are contained ruptures that often can arise from vascular structures. They can arise off the left ventricle, for example, off the infralateral wall of the left ventricle would be a common location for a pseudoaneurysm, sometimes even off of, of bypass grafts. And at times it might not be completely obvious when there's a mass, for example, along the lateral wall of the heart where that's coming from and only was a, was a CT that diagnosis of a pseudoaneurysm may become more, more apparent. What about PET? Should we do PET? But the reality is that PET is not always needed in every case. PET is helpful when we're trying to differentiate if a mass is benign or malignant, but oftentimes we can make the diagnosis just based on the MRI alone. So for example, on MRI, if we see a mass that is vascular because it has first pass perfusion and has delayed enhancement, in those particular cases, we can say that is likely a malignant process as opposed to a benign process. And it would not be unexpected that if we did PET in that particular case, there would be increased FDG uptake reflecting the fact that this is metabolically active. So often if we already have decided that a mass is malignant at that point, really getting the tissue diagnosis is the most important thing. MRI, and in fact, all our imaging is is reasonably good at telling us if a mass is benign or malignant, but once we've identified that a mass is malignant, it may be difficult to know the exact pathology. In fact, in this case, we actually suspected lymphoma. This is a particular mass that we thought lymphoma actually was the top of our list, and that is because this was a large mass involving the AV groove. It had indistinct borders. It invaded the myocardium. There was also a, an effusion present at that time, and that's a feature also that supports this being a malignant process. But nevertheless, the tissue diagnosis, of course, is important. In fact, during this case, I was reminded how many different types of lymphoma we have, and our oncologist made the point how without a tissue diagnosis, treatment would not be possible. So fortunately, that was obtained. In this case, interestingly, the effusion did not identify any malignant cells, but the lung biopsy did. So bottom line, start with an echo. It's always the best initial test. We can do it anywhere in the hospital, but then if it's unclear what's going on with the mass, MRI generally is going to be the next step if a patient can tolerate the MRI. If there is a question about vascular structures or coronary compression, this is where coronary CTA can be done. If a cardiac MRI cannot be done for various reasons, cardiac CT is a reasonable alternative which will uh, uh, show us what the mass is involving and also the size of the mass. We can look for effusion. So that I think is a second best. And I think it's in rarer cases that we then proceed with PET. PET will allow us to look not just at the heart, but outside the heart is their involvement. And in some rare cases, if there's a neuroendocrine tumor, there are specific PET tracers that may be helpful in, in that regard. This was really a fantastic discussion. I learned a lot from your conversation and I'm glad to be able to contribute my thoughts. Thank you all. Beep. Beep.